um, you don't have, it's not, doesn't require you, it's not in the Bible. Um, um, I want to, I have a goal this morning that I'm willing to meet myself, um, but it is the last Sunday of the month, so I would like to, I would like to send 40 Bibles this week from this church, which means that 20 Bibles have to be sent from individuals. Um, so we will start by a show of hands and how many we're going to send, and we will end up sending 20. $16 per, per Bible, um, and part of the cost is ensuring that it gets to someone in prison. Um, and we, Sherry read a story about someone in an unusual place that got a hold of a Bible, and what the power of that is to a person who doesn't have one, um, lives in a place or is confined in a cell where Bibles are listened to better than they are when we are not. So someone, someone start us off this morning. <laughs> Who would like to send a few Bibles this week and let Judy know at the end of the service? Yes, how many? All right, we have one. We're working our way up. Yes, yes. All right, so we're up to 11, 12. Huh? How many? No, Larry's behind you. <laughs> um, we're at, what are we at exactly, Judy? <laughs> I think we're at 12. Yes, we're working our way to 20. All right, I will do eight, and then open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter one, uh, or chapter three, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter three, from Moses to Jesus. The book of Hebrews, again, is often like the book of Romans to Gentiles. This is a book that is for all Christians, written to Jewish messianics, um, Jewish followers of Jesus Christ who are trying not to hold on to Moses as an idol, and they're trying to make Jesus their Lord, and they have the Apostle Paul instructing them how to do that. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, um, present your truth and your word um, through more than words from my tongue today, Lord. Um, this, this Messiah that we serve, help us to know him better and understand his will more clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Hebrews chapter 3, we have some title, we have at least one title in the first verse that you may not put on your list of titles for Jesus. It is an extensive list, and we begin chapter 3 and verse 1, therefore, and he's referring back to all of the things that we looked at last week. Um, we concluded with him as the great high priest who has chosen to suffer so that he can relate to us. And in all of that, therefore, my holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and priest. Jesus is an apostle. So he is the first apostle. Apostle. Apostle comes from the word apostello in the Greek, which means to send or sending. 
So when he sends Paul and um, meets him on the road to Damascus, he's apostolizing him. When he sends the 11 out, he's making them apostles now and not just disciples. They're not just servants and they're not just learners. They are apostles. An apostle is someone in the scriptures who was sent by God. Um, if it's a human being, they were sent directly person to person by Jesus Christ. They are accredited, Paul would say, by miracles. In other words, the supernatural things that happened around Paul testified that Paul was an apostle. Paul was the least um, accepted apostle, um, even though he is the most prominent apostle. Paul is the most hated human being in the history of humanity. Um, and it is because he brings people to God's will and not their own. So Jesus is an apostle sent by God sent by his father. So in John chapter 20, verse 21, you don't have to turn there, but you have it in your notes. He says to his disciples, I'm apostolizing you. Just as the father has sent me into the world, so I send you into the world. So we learn from John chapter 17 that he sends everyone into the world. He begins with the 11. Um, Paul in... 1 Corinthians 15 um, talks about the gospel that he preached on which they received and on which they have taken their stand. By this gospel you are saved. And he says this is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the eleven. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of who are still living, and though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, James his brother. And then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is an abnormally born apostle because he was sent by Jesus four years after Jesus left the earth. So Jesus came down personally to spend three years with Paul from heaven. And he said to Paul immediately in that re relationship, I am sending you to the to kings and to Israel and to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle to the Jews, as Paul is saying here, is Jesus Christ, who is also our apostle. Verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. The appointing, the sending there in John 20 and verse 21 of Jesus, the apostolizing of Jesus. He's the high priest and he's the apostle. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he's going to compare the two. Their ears are perked up as Jews when Paul is talking about Moses. And he's going to put a, a huge gap between Moses and between him and Jesus in this chapter, just like he did between humans and angels and Jesus and the angels in chapter 2. So in verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. 
just as the builder of the house is greater than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of every thing. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. This is familiar from not too long ago in chapter 3. Jesus uses a lot of metaphors, and so does Paul, and Paul is using the metaphor of building a house. We know Jesus gives a, a parable or a saying about building a, a house as a wise builder and building a house as a foolish builder. Most people want their religious house built on their terms. Most people are offended by the lordship of Jesus Christ because they want a savior without a lord, without a king, without a master, without a ruler. And Jesus says in that example that they are like building a house on the sand. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does what I say is like building your house on a rock. So we're going to be in church builders this afternoon that primarily gets its name from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we pick it up where Paul is talking about individuals and he's building to the body and building on the body as individuals. Verse 5, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, um, just like the, the term deacon, just like we saw in Acts chapter 6. Through whom you came to believe. We see that in John chapter 17, Jesus praying in about verse 20. As the Lord has assigned each to its task, always Paul is, presents the church as 100% participation. You have a role in the church that is designed for you. Um, he would tell us in 1 Corinthians 12, not filling your role is like a hand not being attached to your body that day. Verse 6, or as, excuse me, let's read the whole verse 5. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each to his task. We've talked about that in Ephesians 4 this morning. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts. Jesus gives the person as a gift. Um, Paul talks, only Paul really describes that. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Paul says, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Paul always puts himself as an apostle on the ground floor calling each of us his co-workers. Verse 10, By the grace God has given me, the grace comes from Jesus, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay a foundation, any foundation, other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. So the, the church sits on the bedrock or the Petra. And that rock, as we'll see in, even in the Old Testament, is Christ. Rock in the Bible is always Christ. Cornerstone is always Christ. Capstone is always Christ. So the 
cornerstone and the capstone is the first thing put in a foundation which everything is surveyed off of. And he is the foundation, Paul says. He is the entire ground level of the church is Jesus Christ. Paul's an expert builder on the first floor of the foundation, and he says someone else is building on that, someone else is building on that, someone else is building on that, and then he tells us, you are God's household. You are his home, his dwelling place. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. More comparisons with Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and the hope in which we glory. So if we take God's truth and we hold to it, we are his house. We are his dwelling place. Every plan of God from resurrection to rapture is church built. Everything that God has planned to do between those two events is done through the church. So we live in a, a consumerized country where we don't see churches where A, each part does its work, and we also don't see that church has to be in a body. So one another is always church member to church member in a local body. That's, if that foundation isn't strong, Paul will explain to us, what are we going to take to the world? Be a Christian. What does that mean? So the plan of God, Jesus, in John 12, 26, is that where I am, my servant will also be. He, his position, Colossians 1, 18, is that he is the, the supremacy and the sovereign ruler in the church. And he says in Revelation 2, 1 and 2, that, or 2 and 3, that he is walking among the churches. Not every steeple, not every building, not every four walls, but he walks among truth-bearing churches. And he says, where my servant is, that's where, they, where I am. My servant must be with me. He must serve me. And if he does serve me, my, fa my father will honor him. Let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. We have another title for Jesus given. We just read that Moses taught about what would be written, what would be spoken in the future. So in John chapter 5, he is debating with the Jews and he is telling the Jews in John chapter 5 as they want to put him to death. And they're telling him, we have Moses. We don't need you. We have our religion. We have what we want. He says, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. Because Moses wrote about me. But because you don't, effectively, you don't have either. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you have a heading there at verse 14, probably the prophet the capital P prophet in the Bible is Jesus Christ. And 1,500 years earlier, Moses was prophesying about the prophet Jesus Christ. 
Verse 14, the nations will di- you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery and divination, but as for you, the Lord, your God, has not permitted you to do so. The Lord, your God, will, rise, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Moses is prophesying to Israel. God is speaking through him. We'll see God the Father and God the Son both in this chapter. And God is speaking through Moses. And what, what Moses is feeling or thinking would have been unique. We'll have to ask him in heaven. Moses is telling them that a prophet is going to come like me, like Moses. Moses is a picture, I had a book one time, 51 parallels of Moses and Christ. And it's, it's pretty amazing. But Moses is a picture of Christ. And Moses prophesies that there's going to be another prophet like me. When he comes, you better listen. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. So Moses is prophesying that individual. Reading on verse 16. For this is what you asked the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. So they're commanded by God as they're at Horeb. Don't get too close. If if your sheep strays and gets too close to the mountain, they'll be struck dead. And the mountain is literally shaking, this large mountain, and fire and smoke is above it, and it's, the smoke is the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. And he is speaking out of the flames and the smoke, and the people are like, tell them to stop, tell them to stop, we can't take any more. They're afraid that, afraid that they're all going to die, and they're right in their fear. So in verse 16, this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own fellow Israelites and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to the words that that the prophet speaks in my name. But the prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded, or the prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Is a very simple answer. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not not be alarmed. So there are prophets all over the place. There were 400 prophets in northern Israel, and none of them spoke for God except one named Micaiah. And Ahab would never listen to him because he would tell the truth. He would only listen to prophets that said what his itching ears wanted to hear. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. 
Moses would have known, he would have explained, and the majority of the people in that hearing, I will send a prophet like Moses, you need to listen to everything he says, God says, I will put my words in his mouth. Um, by the time Jesus comes, they, they have become their own God. So after the resurrection, Peter is preaching to Jews in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Now fellow Israelites, Peter is preaching, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So he says two things to a Jew. To us, Paul says, look forward to the day he comes down to the clouds and you go up and meet him and you will be with him forever. Encourage each other with these words. He says to the Jews, same thing. Repent and your sins will be wiped out so that times of refreshing will come. Times of refreshing is the millennium. It's the reign of Christ on earth. It is the thousand-year period of time where all the thousands of promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled. Repent. Turn to him so he'll take away your sins and he will invite you into what he calls, Paul will call multiple times in Hebrews, his rest. So, um, verse 21 in the meantime, well, let me read, start in 19 again. Repent then and turn to God so that A, your sins may be wiped out and B, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that's the millennium, and that he may send the Messiah who he has appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to him. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. So Moses is explaining there that Jesus is that prophet. When Moses said he will send a prophet like me, and God the Father says there, I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak to you and you must listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, I will cut you off. Peter says, that's Jesus. That's the one you put on the cross. He is that prophet. So they are anticipating that prophet. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene in John chapter 1, they ask him, are you the prophet? capital P. John says no. A few chapters later, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in, in chapter 6, and they ask the apostles, or the disciples at this time, is he the prophet? The sad truth is they don't know. But yes, he is the prophet. They're connecting dots with Moses Okay, if he's going to be like Moses, is this bread of life in John chapter 6? Is this feeding of the 5,000? Is this the prophet Moses wrote about? No answer from the apostles. 
And Mark gives us a sad commentary that after he feeds the 5,000, they get out in a boat, which Jesus said, we're going to the other side. You must listen to him. We're going to the other side. Halfway across, they're scared to death. Jesus, what's going on here? And he basically says to them, it is I. I am. I told you we're going to the other side. How could you possibly drown in the middle? You must listen to him. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews 3, picking it up, Paul goes back into the Psalms. He's preaching to the church. He's writing to the church in specific Messianic Jews, but this is for the church, which means it is for us. In verse 7, Paul writes, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as they did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and... They have not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So Paul, as we turn to Psalms 95, is preaching from Psalms 95. He has been repeatedly going to the Psalms throughout the book of Hebrews, Um, Psalms that are for the Jews and for the Gentiles, as we have seen in previous weeks. And he is preaching from Psalm 95 what is happening in um, Hebrews chapter 3 is a call to worship. The definition of true worship in the Bible is what? There's a verse in the Bible that gives the definition of what God calls worship. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Old Testament and new, Israel and the church, he has invited them to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. He tells us, Old Testament and new, it's not the smell of goats and bulls burning on a flame. It's a human heart given to God. It's not sacrifices that he's after. It's after the heart and the mind of the human being. So in this psalm that is projecting that God's sovereignty, Christ's sovereignty, and it projects the rest, the the millennial kingdom, which we just read about in Paul quoting this, Psalm 95, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Extol is to lift up, 
and exalt. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So in verses 7 through 11, it happens to be Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Mesa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Paul is preaching this to the church. This is a message to God's people, his followers. It is a call to exalt God. It is a call to be a living sacrifice. It is a warning from God that I will cut you off and strike you down if that's the only option that you give me. So he says in verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Meribah means strife, where they harden their hearts and they pushed against God. As you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. Massa means testing. That's why it was named that. So in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, we have two accounts here of where the people are grumbling against God. Why did you bring us out here, Moses, just so we could die in the wilderness instead of die in Egypt? And where's God? And what has he done for me lately? And we don't see anything good coming from God. And Moses bows before God and this humble man who deals with these rebellious people is, what do I do, God? Jesus says to Moses, take him to the rock. When the people gather around the rock, I'm going to speak through you. And when you speak to them, living water will come out of the one who is the source of living water. And while God is speaking to him, the people are still grumbling, and he is to take his staff and walk over to the rock. He is to speak in the name of the Lord. He is to declare to them that this is God's hand, and he is going to bring forth water, but he is so angry that he takes the stick and he hits the mountain twice, and water comes out. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. Moses only has one bad moment that we see in Scripture. He hit that rock with his staff. And God told Moses, because you did that, I can't bring you into the promised land. We will meet Moses in heaven 
Moses is way more of a holy man than I am. But he misunderstood who God was. And for that reason, Moses couldn't go into the promised land. And what Paul is preaching about when he's preaching this, he says, because they, they just pushed against me and they bickered towards me and they, they doubted me, Meribah. And because I took them to the rock, the, the place, the, the testing, the, the masa, Christ, and they rebelled against their source of water. Go back to Hebrews chapter 3. So the psalmist that Paul is quoting there is calling Israel to repentance and worship. So David is writing that about 500 years after it happened, he's using them as an example. And about a thousand years after David, Paul is using them as the same example. Verse 7 again, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Paul is calling these people to worship. He is speaking inside the church and he is calling people to repent. He is calling people to worship God. He is saying, if you don't, if you don't do this, um, then he, he says in Revelation 2 and 3, I'll remove my lampstand. If you refuse to repent, I can't be in what you are doing. Paul is calling us to worship here through the psalmist. Verse 12 So to see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, the opposite of repentance. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed... We hold firmly, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This is a principle that is taught from Genesis to Revelation. When we understand the calling that it is to do the good works he planned in advance for us to do, and we accept that calling, he gives us everything. When we make him our Lord, I'm going to follow you to the end, he gives us everything that we could never deserve or earn or give God a reason to give to us. But he's making clear, using the example of the Jews in the wilderness, that if we don't choose him as Lord, you will not enter my rest. So he's talking to Christians now about entering his rest. He says in verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. He's speaking, he's preaching to the church here. He is asking the church to hold each other accountable. He is saying, encourage, give courage to everyone in your body. Everyone in your body, Romans 12, 5, belongs to everyone else in the body. 
everyone in the body, Ephesians 4.16, each part does its work bound together as ligaments. That is the picture of the church. Um, one of the things that is on my heart to do biblically is to have membership in this church that obeys what Paul is calling us to do. So we're, we're having people teaching and learning and, and fleshing out truth themselves currently. After that, we're going to talk about what is biblical membership. Membership with me growing up is you passed out a paper and people signed a name and they were members. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about encouraging each other to not be found rebellious, to be found obedient, to be a living sacrifice to God. And I just start thinking of the benefits of doing that. The benefits of if, if you're in the service, as we think about that on Memorial Day, and you are from Alabama and you're in a foxhole for that period of time with someone from New Jersey and you become friends for life because you're bound together to save each other from this horrible war. When Christians are bound together like Paul is describing, we are capable of so much more than we'll each do our best. So some of the things that, that are on my heart, and these are just in a general form, um, membership doesn't have to be written down. It does have to be a commitment. We're, we're looking at going out into th this community that we live in to reach people for the lost. Membership that is biblical involves everyone in the church. And if we can hold each other accountable to follow Christ, we will realize blessings now and blessings in the future that we wouldn't realize if we just each do what we feel is best. So some of those things that, that are clear from the Bible, um, a testimony from someone. This is something we ought to do anyway. I should give my testimony to you. Um, there needs to be, according to the Bible, a demonstration of fruit. Paul says in um, Acts 26, 20, we repent and we turn to God, and then we demonstrate our repentance. We read about fruit. Jesus talks about fruit more than anyone in the Bible. And he says, that's how a person is known by me, and that's how a person is known by others. So we have to have a personal testimony that is both descriptive of how we come to God in truth, and it's been demonstrated. It's been visible that this person follows Christ. Number two, they're able to share how they plan to serve in the church. That's foreign to what I grew up with, but it's clear in the scriptures. It could be a period of time before a person knows, I have a sense People overseeing me have spoken to me. I'm starting to realize um, I've stopped conforming to the world, uh, but rather I'm being transformed. And in that transformation and in the service, I'm starting to realize what he specifically called me to. Service in the church can start immediately. That's the arena 
where the journey begins, where if our church and outreach will be a, a, a way to, to rub together, as, as the scriptures say, where each person has a part, each person has a role, and we learn to serve together so that when we're serving, if I'm physically not prohibited from being there, I will be there. That this is Christ's body, that we are bound together as ligaments, that if, if we reach into the community and 60% go, then 40% of our body parts are missing. The accountability that comes through genuine membership that Paul held Timothy to and Timothy held Paul to, no one will be disappointed. We won't get to heaven and say, man, I, sh I should have had more fun. I should have done more of my thing. So in Ephesians 11, we get this picture of works of service, bound together as ligaments. Each part does its work. And the third aspect of this is submission to authority. This is twofold. They're willing to be overseen, held accountable, and they're willing to oversee, hold others accountable. This is the picture all throughout scriptures that, you know, even Solomon realized that if two walk together and one falls, the other helps them up. If the three walk together, that's hard to pull apart. Paul says if a body bound together by ligaments is together, then we reach maturity. Nothing can blow us off course and we reach God's fulfillment for the church. So we will be working through those things. Who is it for? It's for everyone. Who will it end up being for? Everyone that chooses. It is safe to say that you will go through things practically in your life that this relationship will benefit you like no other. What we can always know is that it is there to benefit Christ. So turn to Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus is pointing to the end of the church, the tribulation, and what's going to happen between now and then. Paul is talking about being faithful to the end. This is common scripture. If, if you sign up to follow Christ as best you can, for as long as you can, you will walk away. If you sign up to follow Christ, flawed as you are for the rest of your life, he will never leave you or forsake you. In chapter 24, verse 9, he says, then you will be handed over and persecuted to death. He's talking about the, the last days of the church and moving into the tribulation. And you will be hated by all the nations because of me. That's happening in the nation of the United States right now. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. More people have turned away from the church in the last two years than in the history of the church. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus told us that would happen. You're going to be persecuted. It doesn't make sense to me that people would hate me just because I follow Jesus. Jesus would say later, if they hated me, they're going to hate you for following me. The problem is, do they know that you know me enough to even bother with you? Jesus is prophesying, reading on verse 10, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. 
and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. We have the emergent church. We have the progressive church today. We have the evangelical church saying, Jesus didn't necessarily have to be God. We don't necessarily have to believe that he died and rose from the grave. Creation and evolution are all options. Where's all that coming from? Washington, D.C.? No. Public schools? No. Inside the church. It doesn't have to all be true. Jesus says that's what it's going to be like. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will go, grow cold. If he told Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 that they're still doing everything they're supposed to be doing, and in America the church isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, how much colder are we than Ephesus? And Jesus says to them in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he says, you're still doing church, but you've lost your reason for doing it. Me. And he says a few years, or about uh, a few years earlier here, he says the love of most will grow cold. Verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's a gospel verse that makes us uncomfortable. Do we have to choose to be faithful to the end? That's what he calls us to. That's all that he calls us to. And he wants us to know from the outset, if you accept that call, you're going to be with me. And he says, or before this, he says, if you're embarrassed of me, if you're afraid to represent me, if you won't speak me to the public, then I'm embarrassed of you too. We read in 2 Timothy Wednesday night um, that if we die with him, we will live with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we become faithless, he remains faithful because of who he is. But the disowning and the dying with him is up to us. Turn to Revelation chapter 3 where he's speaking to another church long before Christ's church in Mendota. Revelation chapter 3 in the letters to the seven churches there are two churches that as a church do not need to repent. And one of them is Smyrna. So there's a, there's a turmoil. The world is ruled by Rome during this time. Domitian is an emperor that came to Ephesus, put John in chains, brought him to Alcatraz, which is called Patmos, tried to kill him. John wouldn't die, made him a prisoner there for life. Domitian dies, the next emperor doesn't have as much interest in John. John is able to take these letters personally to the seven churches. If we actually look in Revelation 1, Revelation is written to these seven churches. And because we're a church, it's also to us. So when we look at Smyrna, this church is being heavily persecuted. In fact, we're being told that in their town, Satan has taken up residence. This is the church he must destroy. Meaning that it is very likely that Smyrna is the most faithful church on earth. 
And what are they getting for it? Persecution. If they hated me, they'll hate you. They will turn away from you. They will, they will persecute you even more. And he says to them the same thing we will see multiple times in Hebrews. Be faithful. Remain faithful. So in verse 8, well, yeah, verse 8 of, I'm not sure I got my notes right there. Um, Smyrna is in verse 8 of chapter 2. Yes, I think I have 3 in my notes. Sorry about that. That's the other faithful church, by the way. Um, verse 8, chapter 2, the angel of the church of Smyrna write. He's telling John to write this letter to Smyrna. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know that the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. So first of all, he says, I know it looks bad right now. You people are rich. No matter what the world says about you, you are rich and you'll know it when you meet me. And he says to them, I know you're being heavily persecuted. It's going to get worse. And some of you are going to be put in prison to see if you will deny me. And I want you to know that if you're faithful to the end, you won't be disappointed and you'll have the victor's crown. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is telling us to be faithful to the end. There are so many places, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, the armor of God. So when you have done everything to stand, when you've stood continuously and all the way throughout, stand firm. That's the message Paul gives. He tells us to put on the armor so that we can stand firm. The grace of Christ is the armor of Christ that he is willing to enforce on and in our lives if we will put it on. Paul is speaking of the second death here and the resurrection and the longest description of the resurrection in the Bible in this chapter. And at the end of the chapter, he is doing the same thing that he's doing in Hebrews, asking us to stand firm. Verse um, 56, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the idea of church membership isn't so that we have a, a voting register. It isn't so that we can have a, a membership card. The idea is that as Paul is writing this and Jesus and Paul are explaining to us is that if we're not bound together, if you can't help me walk with Christ and I can't help you walk with Christ, he says the churches are just going to fall apart in the end. But the churches that don't fall apart, the Smyrna's and the Philadelphia's in Revelation that stand firm, Jesus says to them, 
you won't be disappointed. So it isn't for me to be always judging you or you always judging me. It's for me to say, let's walk with Christ today. And then tomorrow, let's say, let's walk with Christ today. Let's walk with Christ today. So this standing firm to the end picture as we go back to Hebrews and finish the chapter in chapter 3. All of that is in verse 13 that we just looked at. But encourage one another how often? Daily. As long as it is called today. As long as the church is here, as long as you are alive on this earth, Paul says, receive courage and give courage every day so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. As individuals, that's almost impossible to avoid. Encouraging each other daily sets up a place that God can bind so that none of us are found prisoners of deceitfulness and sin. And it will, the benefits will so far outweigh the challenges. Reading on verse 15, you pick it up there. As has just been said, he wants to repeat this again. Today, for you and me, that's this day. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom has, was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Did they believe that the God of heaven was speaking to Moses? Yes, they did. How do we know that? Because they said, tell them to stop speaking or we're all going to die. Did they believe that everything God said through Moses was true? Yes, they did. When the time came for their feet to give testimony to their belief, what did they do? They disobeyed through disbelief. What was the result? All of them died in the desert. Paul is saying that's a picture for us. Moses' belief was what he did. Everyone else's belief except Joshua and Caleb was what is reasonable for me to do. And Paul is trying to convince us and convict us in Hebrews that stay firm to the end. Turn to chapter 10. We will just read this in closing where Paul is going to multiple times keep using this same form of teaching. This is who Christ is. This is what he has done. This is what he's calling you to. Don't shrink back. Don't be moved off course. And in chapter 10, we think about how, how the, the church has been so moved off course, the quote-unquote church. How do you know, 1 John 2, who truly believes and who doesn't? Who's still here? 
is the first question. Who's still here? And the church that is being written to specifically, the Jews here during Paul's lifetime were being heavily persecuted. Verse 24, let us hold unswervingly. How many times have we read today? If you hold firmly to the end, the gospel that was given to you, the three-part gospel, repent, believe, obey. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, encourage one another as long as it's called today in chapter 3. Here it's, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. There has to be a commitment in the binding. There has to be, I'm, I'm feeling like, don't even use that word. I'm seeing in these verses that I'm to hold you and help you and walk with you to do what God has called you to do. And if I'm reading this right, he's asking you to do that on my behalf. And it seems like what Paul is saying is that if we're not bound together as ligaments and it gets tough, we'll be like the disciples when Jesus was arrested. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging giving courage to each other, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, even more in 2022 than in 66 AD when Paul is writing this. He's, he's prophesying here. Jesus said, the closer you get to my return, the more people will hate you if you follow me. The closer you get, they will put some of you in prison. They will test your faith there like they did Paul's. Paul's about to go into prison in Rome for the last time where he will be killed. He's writing to a church, the, the messianic church of his day, knowing they're heavily persecuted. He will tell us later in Hebrews, their homes are burnt down. Their possessions are stolen. Their families are torn apart. If I say I can do all things through Christ who gives me th strength, what does that really mean? Does it mean all things? It did for Paul. And he only said that because he already did. Paul would have seen people extremely close to him stoned to death and had opportunity to prevent it. If someone we love is being persecuted like they are here, will we rescue them by avoiding Christ? Or will we stay true all the more, even as the rapture is approaching? Verse 26 if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have already received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. These words are spoken to a heavily persecuted Christ-following church. Verse 27, but only the fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
how much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. David says in the Psalms that the scriptures are there to warn us and to bless us. The blessing here is if you encourage each other all the more until the day approaches, the meeting of Christ is going to blow you away. And he is saying here, not me, he's saying here that if you're in the church like they were in the wilderness and your lips, back in Sunday school, confess Yahweh, but when the moment of truth comes, they can't overtake those guys. They were all destroyed in the desert. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, at the end of the church, when we're getting close, people are going to say, that's too much. They're going to shrink back. They're going to say, I verbalized it. I was involved. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, remember those earlier days after you received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution and other times you stood side by side with those who were being so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions, treasures in heaven. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one will live by faith and I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back, Paul says, and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Heavenly Father, this challenges us, this Part of the warning that, that seems to be clear is that if we're not bound together, we will fall apart. We are designed, according to Ephesians 4, so that if God's will is completely followed through, we will be ligaments with each part doing its work and immovable from the truth, not swayed by the false teachings and the examples that surround us. Lord, we can't do any of this without you. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.
the breakaway. Now, 